Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Violence against women comes in many forms. Coming up, we learn about domestic violence across the globe. Experts say no matter what country you're talking about, violence by an intimate partner comes down to one thing, control. We'll learn more from a policy coordinator with CARE, Inc. It's an international development group. That's later this hour. Now, domestic violence is being talked about in recent days after the troubling news that the man who killed 26 people in Sutherland Springs, Texas, had abused his wife and child. And authorities knew about it, but he was still able to purchase a firearm, despite laws that are supposed to keep guns out of the hands of abusers. Now, firearms are used in the majority of domestic violence homicides in the U.S. We'll hear from the National Network to End Domestic Violence about current laws and what states can do to better protect those in abusive relationships. But first, one in three women will experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime. My next guest is one of these women. Sarah Gallardo is a Connecticut resident. She joins me now in studio. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I also want to tell our listeners that we're going to be talking about firsthand experiences of domestic violence, so this conversation may not be suitable for everyone, including young listeners. Now, Sarah, um, I, I mentioned that you live in Connecticut. You're also the founder and executive director of Sarah Speaks Up, and we'll learn more about your organization in just a little bit. But we wanted to hear a little bit about your personal story. I understand that you're a survivor of domestic violence. Tell us about your relationship. Um, well, I was with my ex-husband for over the span of about 10 years. We weren't married for that entire time, but um, you know, it was definitely a tumultuous, traumatic situation. Um, when I first met him, he was very charming and said all the things I think I needed to hear in order to begin a relationship with him. Um, at the time, I know that my self-esteem was really low, which tends to be a factor in these kinds of situations. But for me, it, it really manifested itself in the beginning, which is, I mean, a big reason I think that I found myself where I, I ended up. Um, it was, it sort of ran the gambit of all the different kinds of abuse that we talk about. So, um, Such as? Well, I know that, you know, there was physical violence. There was definitely the use of weapons. I was, um, I experienced reproductive abuse, which is something that not many people are aware of. Um, there was also, you know, threats, harassment, financial abuse. Um, and so it, after experiencing these kinds of things, I really found myself not even feeling like myself anymore. You mentioned reproductive abuse. I know you talk about that in your book, uh, Hiding in Plain Sight. Um, but tell our listeners this, uh, you know, your experience for a term that they may not have heard before. Sure. Um, so reproductive abuse is essentially when an abuser takes control of a person's reproductive choices. So that can manifest itself in you know, one of two ways. I mean, there's also offshoots, but basically one of two ways, and that is either withholding um, if, if a person wants to have children and not agreeing to do that, 
or forcing them into a situation where they have children. Um, and that's where I found myself. Um, I was not allowed to take birth control. And when I tried to hide it, um, I was beaten to the point where I ended up, you know, sort of just giving in. And I had two miscarriages. So the abuse didn't end when I became pregnant. Um, and then he would blame me for the miscarriages, which sort of you know really further broke me down emotionally. Um, I did have finally have a child, and so my daughter, she's 10 years old now, um, but even even with that, that ties into financial abuse. You know, I, I don't receive any child support, so there's no financial help um, in that way. For some who are listening and they hear that you went through the gamut of uh, these different types of abuse by your ex-husband, uh, the question will come up that, well, why weren't you able to leave? Can mm -hmm. you walk us through why it's not as easy as just <laughs> making that decision? Yeah, well, it, it's really not. I mean, I'm chuckling, not because it's a funny topic, but because at what point do you think that didn't occur to someone? Yeah, I'd love to leave. Um, there's so much happening with threats and manipulation, um, being even brainwashed to, and, and you're so afraid. I mean, the times that a person does abuse you physically, they'll threaten your pets, your family, ruin your jobs, you know, just all these different things. And I think, <laughs> you know, you add the component of love for a person. And now we get into a whole different ball game because if if a stranger walks past you on the sidewalk and, you know, hits you over the head or something, you're not going to try and settle things or see them tomorrow or maybe I'll take their text. You know, you're going to call the police and you're going to do what you have to do. But if you have emotional connections with someone, it really changes your reactions at times, you know, be, you begin to make excuses, um, which <laughs> is also really common. And you thought at times that he would change? I did. I did. Um, at, there was a time when I did think that. and But I brought it back to myself, too. I thought, you know, how it, it depended on how hard I tried. I have to try these new ways, these different ways. And my compliance would then create his change. I was told that, you know, it was always brought back on me. So if I did this, he would do this. If I changed or did something different, then the outcome would be better on his end. And um, that never really happened. You mentioned that there are threats uh, when you um, try to leave or... Um you had mentioned there are threats to your pets, threats to your family. Is that something that your ex did? Yeah, actually, um, my I had a cat who, um, sadly, I had to put down in December. Um, but I had had her for 15 years, and she one one of the times I was trying to leave, he actually kidnapped my cat, um, and had she, she he brought her to. A stranger's apartment I guess it was a person he knew 
He convinced this woman that the cat was being abused, and so she thought she was doing a good thing by saving this cat. All the while, it's my well-loved and cared-for cat. Um, And then, you know, I had to comply and do all these things in order to find out where she was. Then he took me there, and then I had to convince that woman that I'm not abusing my cat so I could get her back. Um, It was... That was really tough. So your abuser used lots of manipulation to keep keep you controlled. When your family understood what was going on um, and they wanted to help you, what did you tell them? Did you isolate yourself because you were worried about their safety? I did isolate myself because I was worried about their safety. I did that quite often. You know, my family dynamic at the time, it was it was a tricky time for my family anyway. Um you know, my parents' divorce sort of, I don't know, left things a little tumultuous at times. And so who I could depend on sort of changed over time. And yeah, I definitely did isolate myself. This is where we live. Today we're talking about domestic violence. In studio with me is Sarah Gallardo. Uh, she's founder and executive director of Sarah Speaks Up. She's a survivor herself of domestic violence. And you can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. Also in studio with us is Margaret Rosa. She's associate director of Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury. Now this is one of 18 domestic violence uh, agencies that provide services uh, uh, to residents. Uh, Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. When you hear Sarah's story, is this common? Yes. Yes, it is. I often say that uh, each each story is very unique, but the but the themes are very, very similar. Now, Sarah, when you when you're talking about um, this this uh, time frame, you were married. You were married. You're with this man for ten years. Part of that time, you were married. It's a very precarious time when you finally decide that you're going to leave. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through what was the, I guess the, the 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 end point where you decided this is enough is enough? Y- yeah, I mean, I there wasn't the end point had different layers. I guess it it wasn't as cut and dry as that. For me, I was, you know, once I had my daughter, I knew that I had to leave this situation. So I was I was actually in the process of creating my safety plan with one of the domestic violence organizations here in Connecticut um, when he was arrested and put in jail. So I was in the process of working that out, and then I didn't actually have to follow through because, you know, he was taken away. Now, uh, I mentioned this is a precarious time. I wanted to ask Margaret to um, expound on that a little bit. So when uh, when someone contacts uh, your agency and they need help, they want to get away from their abuser, how do you walk them through that, that plan to leave and you know, why it is so difficult, that moment? Well, often case, uh, well, in, in many circumstances, such as Sarah's, uh, it's it's been many years of of this abuse that's been going on, and um, the the victim will often feel crazy, you know, like maybe it's there is something wrong with them, um, and it's it's you know, and it's it's just very scary. There's a lot of fear there. There's all these different uh, manipulative tactics that the abuser is doing to control them. Um, and include and when weapons are involved, um, it really intensifies the situation. 
Um, we've heard stories where, you know, there's guns under their mattresses, there's guns in the nightstands, um, you know, all sorts of things. So they use that to, to make you feel calling the police, calling for help, doing anything, because they will go after anyone that tries to, to help them. And in Sarah's case, um, what I think helped there was that, you know, um, the accountability in the state of Connecticut, you know, the, you know, which in, when it works, it works well, works really great. Um, when you're, talk, you're talking about specific state laws that help people in um, abusive relationships, so if someone were to get a restraining order against their abuser, is there? can you talk about the mechanisms a little bit more, Margaret? Uh, sure. So, well, there's a couple of, a couple of things. So in criminal court, um, when, when the police come to a scene and they make an arrest, then uh, usually what happens is a victim will get a protective order, um, and then that basically keeps the abuser away from them. Um, and then the other process is in civil court. So maybe the, the victim's afraid to call the police, um, so they're not sure what to do. So they take, um, they go to the civil court and uh, contact one of the um, civil legal advocates in the state, and then they'll walk them through the process of getting a restraining order. Um, and then that will give that type of protection as well. And so basically, in some cases, that will be enough to keep um, the abuser kind of in check, like keep them away from the victim. I also understand uh, Connecticut has a law, it's called a risk warrants. So uh, the this law enforcement agencies can seize guns pursuant to a warrant from people at imminent risk of injuring themselves or anyone else, even without a crime being committed. And that can also help someone in a situation where they're trying to leave. Yes, yeah. I should mention um, at the start of the show, uh, there are a few hotlines for people who are looking for help or looking for, for more information. The National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE. In Connecticut, you can call 888-774-2900. Uh, if you're a Spanish speaker or if you know someone uh, that would, would help them to call the Spanish hotline, 844-831-9200. We'll tweet out those links at where we live, also wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find those numbers. I want to take a call now. Um, we have a caller calling from Farmington. Uh, go ahead with your, your comment or question. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, we have a friend who is in a domestic violence situation, um, and she's not, she wants, you know, if you ask her, she wants to leave, but she's not ready to take any steps um, to do that. And she, we just want to know how to best support her because we just, we don't really know what to do for someone who's just not ready to take any of the steps that you guys are kind of talking about, like calling the hotline or um, yeah. something like that. Go ahead, Margaret. Uh, so yeah, it can be it can be frustrating because it's it is it is difficult for for um, a victim to to really make that step to leave. Um, and really, uh, they have to be ready themselves. And so, what you can do best is is although it may seem kind of frustrating at times, is really be there to listen to them, support them. Uh, just continue to reiterate to them that they can call uh, the, the hotline in Connecticut um, to get help. Um, and it's, it's free, it's anonymous, and it's confidential. So uh, nobody, nobody would ever know that they did that. Well, thank right. you. 
thank you for your call from Farmington. Um, does that help, or do you have other questions for, for Margaret or other guests? Yeah, no, that is helpful. And I guess, uh, you know, we kind of waffle between wanting to be supportive and also being, you know, really frustrated, which we realize is very unfair to the victim in the situation. Um, but, you know, she she just kind of seems paralyzed by the whole situation. And um, it's helpful to hear that just being there and, you know, continuing to be supportive is really like the best thing that we can do. Well, thank you for your call, and we wish your your friend uh, the best of luck in that situation. I wanted to go back to, to Sarah Gallardo again. She's a domestic violence survivor. She's written the book Hiding in Plain Sight. You actually um, make a, a point to talk about when it's time to make that phone call. There's a, a way to do it where the person that is your abuser isn't going to find out and use that against you. Can you walk us through that? Yes. You know, it's really important to not use your own technological devices. So if you're looking up information, don't use your own computer, you know, or your tablet or anything, your cell phone. You know, if you're going to make the call, I recommend that people do it from either a work phone, a family member's phone, someone else's, because now technological abuse is so pervasive and, you know, if a person has the ability or even the connections, they can hack into your devices and control the information, not only that you receive, but that goes out as well. Um, and they could check all your search histories. And and that's something you really don't want to tip someone off to. You want to be able to create your safety plan in as calm a, a situation as possible. Now, at the time that you were able to leave, your ex had been arrested so you mm-hmm. felt comfortable leaving. Um, now, fast forward uh, several years. Yeah. Um, how is life for you? And do you feel safe, even though you're not in this relationship anymore? You know, I, life is life is good. Life is interesting. I have uh, a wonderful boyfriend who may be listening right now. <laughs> um, and I have, you know, my daughter. She's doing well in school. She's happy. You know, we we work well together. You know, it's something I feel really blessed to have that I'm, you know, having gone through what I did just gives me a different perspective. Um, it gives me, I think, you know, I don't want to say a higher appreciation for my my situation, but definitely you know, a different one. I'm, I realized that it didn't have to end up the way that it did. And I'm really grateful for that. I mentioned that you're founder and executive director of Sarah Speaks Up. What has been your experience uh, going around the state talking about domestic violence, talking about your very personal uh, situation? What are you hearing from residents? Really, I'm hearing people, I'm I'm constantly being thanked for speaking up and speaking out um, on behalf of people who are, you know, why I chose this title for the book, but still hiding in plain sight. People who, you know, their coworkers and church members and, you know, parents, friends, you walk by people every single day who are experiencing, you know, something. And so it's it's been really interesting. People are really receptive to it. And I think um, I'm just trying to create a climate of 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 honesty and compassion and, you know, less judgment, especially for people who are suffering, people who are suffering, I, to, in order to judge them, 
it just doesn't make sense. It, it really just adds insult to injury, and it really isn't helpful for anyone involved. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about domestic violence today. In studio with me, a domestic violence survivor, Sarah Gallardo, founder and executive director of Sarah Speaks Up. Also here with us, Margaret Rosa, associate director of Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury. It's one of 18 domestic violence service agencies in Connecticut. Now, after the break, we'll hear more from Margaret about local resources, and we'll turn our attention to a common theme among domestic violence homicides guns. What laws exist on the federal and state levels to keep people in abusive relationships safe? We're going to talk more about that after the break, and we'll take your calls too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We started the show talking about a startling statistic. One in three women will be the victim of intimate partner violence in their lifetime. Among men, it's one in four. In September, the Hartford Current reported on the death of Patricia Patty Torbicki of Newington. She was 46 years old when she was found shot to death inside the front door of her home. Her husband, Michael Torbicki, who was hospitalized with a serious gunshot wound, has been charged with her murder. In Torbicki's obituary, her family wrote that her life was, quote, taken away too soon by an act of domestic violence. Now, if you're in an abusive relationship, uh, there are numbers to call. One is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's 1-800-799-SAFE. In Connecticut, it's 888-774-2900. In studio with me is Sarah Gallardo, founder and executive director of Sarah Speaks Up. Also, Margaret Rosa, associate director of Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury. That's uh, one of 18 domestic violence service agencies in the state of Connecticut. And joining the conversation now is Monica McLaughlin, Director of Policy at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Monica, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. When we talk about the role of guns in domestic violence situations, how often uh, do they lead to someone being killed? Well, um, you know, in domestic violence situations, um, they are often deadly. And um, in this country, an average of three women are killed a day at the hands of a former or current intimate partner. When you add firearms into that mix, it's a deadly combination. The um, it, the risk of being murdered um, go up 500% in those situations. Um, when there's already domestic violence, uh, that can the risk can increase by 2,000%. So it's really, the connection is very strong and very scary. Now, EverytownResearch.org uh, had studied this, and they found that more than half of women murdered with guns in the U.S. in 2011, um, more than 50 percent were killed by intimate partners or family members. I'm curious, Monica, on the, from the national perspective, you know, what does the federal law, how, does, how do federal laws protect uh, people in abusive relationships? What is and is not working? Well, I think, you know, we've had about... Uh, over 20 years of federal law where there's sort of federal protections um, on the criminal side, um, and we've had longer than that with services. So the federal government has funded domestic violence services across the country for since 1984. Um, what's working? I mean, I think what's working is um, funding communities to come together and look at the issue um, <clears throat> from multiple sectors, multiple perspectives, and say, 
and know that everybody has a role in ending domestic violence. Um, I think what's still not working is that it's we're sort of chipping away at millennia here. We're looking at an issue that's been with us since the dawn of time. It's going to take a while to fix, um, and I think that we need to continue to invest in prevention, um, which we haven't done enough of yet. Um, we also have to invest in lots of issues, lots of resources to help survivors when they need to leave. Um, so our investments in the economic side of a survivor's life um, need to be upped as well. So housing, legal assistance, um, shelter, other things that survivors need to leave and escape and uh, start again. And the loopholes that exist, Monica. You know, I started the yeah. show talking. Everyone's been talking about the the Texas shooter uh, who had domestic violence in his background, but he was still able to get firearms. I mean, it's tragic. It's so tragic that there is federal law that says if you are convicted of a misdemeanor or federal or felony domestic violence, um, or you have an order of protection against you for domestic violence, that you are barred from owning a firearm. And yet so many gaps exist that are just egregious and unacceptable at this point. It's been 20 years since the law was passed. And so it is more than time for the states to get this right and for all actors to, to play their part. Um, to get the records into the system and to do the background checks when folks are purchasing firearms. Well, in studio with us is Margaret Rosa, Associate Director of Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury. We, we touched on this earlier about uh, when our firearms are in someone's home. I'm reading from uh, the Connecticut Domestic Violence Fatality Review Committee report. Between 2000 and 2015, there were more 222 intimate partner homicides in Connecticut, an average of 14 per year. Uh, what do we know about those specific cases, Margaret? Um, we know that um, many of them, there are firearms in the home, um, and that um, those 14 um play a big part in the state and then also you uh, the, it's kind of what abusers use to, to show their power and control when they can point to hey look um, look what look what the, <laughs> look Sarah's nodding her head <laughs> um, look what they look what he did to her I can do the same to you um, or you know and especially when you have some of those national stats those figures that um guns uh increase the uh, the the risk of homicide by 500 percent um i mean they they use those figures to to scare and intimidate and that really prevents people from wanting to leave sarah you were nodding your head because in your 10-year relationship with your abuser he used a firearm against you at one point Yes, um, I was shot at on one occasion. Um, that it—it's terrifying. It, it, I mean, it it takes a second for the actual event to happen, but the gravity of it sometimes doesn't even hit you in the moment, and you're just paralyzed. I found myself paralyzed when it happened, and by then, I think I was just so emotionally broken down that I, I had at that time assumed I would I would be killed at some point. Um, it, it seemed just like an inevitability to me. Um, and, and it is, again, it's terrifying. Once it happened, I don't know if he meant to scare me or if he meant to hit me. So I don't know the intention behind it. It, 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 it did not hit me, it hit the window of my car. And, you know, I 
I feel very lucky. On the phone with us is Monica McLaughlin, again, Director of Policy at the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Uh, Monica, we're getting a a tweet from a listener who wants uh, to ask about legal abuse, how abusers can use the family and civil court systems to continue to harm their victims. Uh, This is a a listener who also writes for the Greenwich Time and has been reporting on stories of domestic violence in Greenwich. What can you tell her, uh, Monica, again, about how the uh, family and civil court systems, um, how they can be uh, manipulated in a way by an abuser to harm their victims? Oh, absolutely. This is an issue that we hear about all the time. It is, um, it does tend to be sort of a state and local issue. There's not a lot of fixes at the federal level for the family court system, except for investing in legal services for survivors, um, which we do have some federal programs that invest in legal services for survivors. Um, our, my organization runs womenslaw.org, um, which is a plain language legal assistance website that folks can um, write into and get some, um, not legal advice, but legal information um, when they have to represent themselves pro se in court, which so many survivors do. It's terrifying. You know, folks who don't, who can't access sort of um, legal legal aid, but, um, you know, don't have enough money for their own lawyer, have to represent themselves. And um, it is a way that abusers will continue to perpetuate the abuse once the relationship has ended. So through divorce court, through custody, all of those issues continue to abuse the um, survivor by, you know, bringing more and more things to court um, and terrorizing um, the survivor in that way. We hear about that all the time. Margaret Rosa from uh, Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury, uh, what do the people you're helping uh, experience? Yeah, so... For some reason, um, abusers somehow have unlimited access and funds to have an attorney to defend them. And so usually uh, the victims we see do not, Um, regardless of where they live, their socioeconomic status. um, They just don't have the funds. Um, So it it gets very difficult for them to, so if, you know, there can be a constant continuances in court um, regarding divorce, custody, and then even restraining orders. Um, and if if they're going against uh, a defense attorney, then the, that really um, amplifies it to, to tie up the court process for them until either, and the, the point is to try to, to, to tire them out, to tire the victims out so they'll, they'll stop. Um, trying to seek protection. Now, in the in the state of Connecticut, um, we do have um, uh, great support from uh, Connecticut Legal Services in Waterbury. Um, our, our Legal Services of Waterbury is, uh, is a huge help, um, helps many um, of our victims um, with free consultations, and um, they will take on cases. And, and that's really been a big help when dealing with the civil process. Uh, what's the role of law enforcement, Margaret, in how uh, they will, when they go to a, um, a residence where there's a, a call for help and, and how they acknowledge if somebody in the home is a, a victim of domestic violence and how to pair them up with services to get them out of that situation? Can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. So um, Connecticut is, I, th- I believe, the only state where it has a statewide uh, response through with law enforcement and domestic violence. And uh, so every scene um, of a domestic violence incident, uh, law law enforcement will complete what's called the lethality assessment 
um, it's I think protocol doesn't kind of flow, but <laughs> it's called LAP. Um, and so they they do the the screen, and if a victim screens in for high danger, um, then they will immediately contact the the hotline uh, in their area and connect the victim to domestic violence services. Um, so it's already connecting that person who who more often than not has never had um, a connection to a domestic violence program, and it sort of opens the door for them to just seek these important services that really can help guide them through the criminal uh, process, criminal justice process. Uh, Monica, is this something that other states are doing? Yes, it is. In fact, it's, it is supported by um, federal law and federal funding, um, and it is something that we're, you know, we have some learning communities around so that we're looking at how this is working in all the states and able to you know, utilize those best practices and roll it out across the country, which is a great way to use federal funds. Um, and so this is a great way, um, as Margaret was saying, to connect to survivors who've never had, um, never reached out for services before, but um, kind of relaying back to them that, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for your safety is a way to help a survivor see that there might be services for that survivor. This is where we live today. We're talking about domestic violence. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Jonathan's calling from New Britain. Jonathan, you're on the show. Hi. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, My question, I guess, more relates towards um, uh, sexual abuse. Um, One thing we hear a lot, especially, you know, with all the recent, you know, abuse allegations coming out against high-profile men is that there's certainly a problem, a very big problem with male culture um, and the way we handle sort of these, handle these sort of things. And so I was just wondering, you know, what your panel's opinions were on like where, because I mean, I've begrudgingly been a part of, you know, that quote unquote locker room talk that goes on between guys. So like, where is the point where, other men when these sort of conversations are happening that we need to step in and sort of be like, Hey, you know, it's time to stop like that. That's the line you shouldn't cross. Good question. Sarah Gallardo. You know, I think, um, thank you for asking that. And, you know, thank you just for observing and, you know, being mindful. Um, I think that that's definitely something that should be done. The the men who stand up, the men the men who set positive examples, not only for boys growing up, but for girls growing up as well. What it looks like to treat someone with respect, and I think that starts. You know, you mentioned this the whole locker room talk. Um, I I. I understand that people have these, you know, private conversations that they think don't hurt anyone. But even if you're perpetuating someone else's thought process that that kind of mindset or that kind of, you know, way of thinking towards a a female is okay, safe, healthy and, you know, acceptable. And it's really it's really not. It it does hurt. It, It hurts both genders because it creates this divide and you know 
by standing up, you really just put a stop to that process. Even if you get someone else just to think twice, you know, say, do you have a mother? Do you have a sister, a daughter, a cousin? And how would you feel if someone spoke to them that way? How about if someone spoke to your wife that way? Um, and, And maybe just shift their way of thinking about it. Well, Margaret Rosa, we're almost uh, almost out of time, but um, we talked a little bit earlier about um, safety plans, and uh, we want to make sure that if people want to get more information about how to connect with one of the domestic violence service agencies in the state, including yours, like, what's the best way to do that? Um, the best way is to call the hotline, really, that, um, uh, the 888 uh Seven seven four twenty nine hundred 2900 is really the best way because that will connect you directly to your uh, domestic violence program in your area. Um, and then just start asking them questions. That's that's what they're there for. They're there to answer your questions um, and help you figure it out. Um, and even um, for friends and family as well, if, if you have questions, um, you, you can call the hotline as well. And when we talk about domestic violence, before we, again, uh, have to end the break, uh, intimate uh, partner violence, it's not just something that women experience as victims. Men are also a part of yes. this issue yeah. in terms of also being targeted. So how do, we, how do we change the conversation as well to talk about domestic violence as a whole and not just one gender versus the other? Yeah, we we definitely try to use it in our statistics um, that we say um, whenever we go out uh, and talk to the community and make sure that they know that men are experiencing uh, domestic violence. Um, and um, I know one of our stats that we have is that like this during this past year, we served about 3,500 victims and about I think uh, it is like 500 of them were were men. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty large, large number. Uh, we got a, a comment from a listener uh, who wants to know uh, where to reach out when it's the, the, the male experience domestic violence. <laughs> they could also call that hotline, right? Yes, they could. <laughs> they, they can. And tell us yeah. that hotline number again. Um, 888-774-2900. And again, we'll put that on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for coming in to Thanks share your story me. again. Uh, Sarah Gallardo is founder and executive director of Sarah Speaks Up. She's also written a book that's just been uh, published, Hiding in Plain Sight, A Glimpse into the Reality of Domestic Violence. We really appreciate you coming in today, Sarah. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Also, thanks to Monica McLaughlin with the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And Margaret Rosa will stay stick with us as we talk about intimate partner violence globally. We'll also continue to take your calls and questions. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, one's a Republican, the other's a Democrat. One's from New Britain, the other from Bristol. On the next Where We Live, women in public office. We'll talk with Mayors Aaron Stewart and Ellen Zappo-Sasu. We'll explore the latest campaign trends, and we want to hear from you, too.
That's tomorrow. Now, today we've been talking about domestic violence and abuse here in the U.S., but intimate partner violence is not a problem confined just to this country. It's a worldwide issue. Care International is an international development organization that works on projects in countries around the world, one area of focus, violence against women. So how is CARE working to address this problem globally? Joining us now is Savannah Fox. She's Northeastern Regional Advocacy Coordinator for the Policy and Advocacy Department at CARE International USA. Savannah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning. So we've been talking about domestic violence. Uh, this falls under this broader category of, of violence against women. Also, uh, it's called gender-based violence. Can you walk us through all this terminology and what these different terms mean? Yeah, of course. And I think one of the stats that I always try to start with is uh, to give a broad overview when we talk about global violence against women is that one in three women will experience violence in their lifetime. And when we talk about this violence, um, I think it's very important to talk about it as uh, it's universal. It cuts across nationality, race, wealth, and social status, and women experience it throughout their entire lifetimes. So we see it as children when they're neglected or malnourished because they're girls. Uh, We see it when they're adolescents, when they're contracted into child marriages. And we also see it as adults within intimate relationships or at the hands of family members. And I think touching on your point about terminology is that types of violence have a lot of different terminology that we use. We hear crimes of passion, honor killing, But at the core of it, domestic violence is about control over a woman's body, movement, the choices that they make, and and really about their ability to live a free life. And so I think there's a lot of commonalities between domestic violence here in the U.S., um, which we just heard about on your show earlier, and also the commonalities between um, the, the work that we see in communities that we do abroad. And at the very core of it, it's violence is an exercise in control and power between the abuser and the abused. And unfortunately, when we look at the global statistics, domestic violence or violence perpetrated by an intimate partner really becomes the most common form of violence that women and girls face today. Can you give us some ideas as an international development organization, uh, Savannah, some countries where you're seeing uh, work on gender-based violence? Yeah, of course. And I, I would like to point out that I think that CARE's approach to preventing and also responding to violence is very unique in a lot of ways, and we really focus on shifting the norms around acceptable behavior. So I think I can highlight maybe two very quickly that we work on. Um, One is in Rwanda, where we have an innovative program that addresses domestic violence through a combination of couples curriculum, uh, community activism, and safe spaces for women. And although the project hasn't been fully evaluated yet, the early findings really seem to show some promising results so far. And then a second one in Burundi where we have a program, um, we engage the men. We have a a very deep focus on engaging the men in this program. Um, And we use personal testimonies, even theater, personal consultations, and other peer-to-peer activities to really focus on how men can be uh, part of the solution instead of just part of the problem. And this has actually led to the emergence of a a local movement of male champions for gender equality, which has really been great. How challenging is it when you're in countries where you have patriarchal societies? I mean, how how easily is it done to get these uh, uh you know these male these men on board? You know, I think it it changes country to country just because the cultures are so different. Um, and I think when we we focus on 
talking to men, we talk about social acceptability. And so, however, when women and girls and men and community leaders and other gatekeepers challenge the notion of whether it's okay to beat a child or to beat a wife, um, it, it really takes the entire community to change that norm. And so we really focus on not just providing safe spaces and empowerment for women and girls, but really engaging the men at the, the on-start um, of the programs. And I think it, it takes an investment in time and commitment to work with not just women and girls, but also men and boys. But it, sh- it shows at the very end that that's really how we break the entire cycle. It's not just supporting the women and girls, but also giving men and boys that ability to change those social norms. Now, we've all heard of the Violence Against Women's Act, or VAWA. Mm-hmm. There's now a, a bill uh, before Congress uh, that is the International Violence Against Women mm-hmm. Act. This is uh, introduced by Senator Susan Collins and Jean Shaheen. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and just a little bit of background, the International Violence Against Women Act isn't new. It actually was first uh, introduced into Congress by then-Senator Joe Biden in 2007. Um, It's been reintroduced several times, um, and just recently on Tuesday it was reintroduced again. And IVAWA really focuses on strengthening the U.S. government's diplomatic engagement with foreign governments on policies that impact violence against women and girls, making sure that we have the funding, the strategies, and the focus on that. So when we're looking at this from an international perspective, as well as in in this country, I mean, what are some grassroots ways of helping uh, from, you know, people listening here in Connecticut in terms of national policy or even trying to make an impact uh, across the across the world? That's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, some of the, the options that were provided before by other speakers domestically and locally are, are great. Um, internationally, I would say something that we work with our advocates, not just in Connecticut, but around the country, is really what I like to say, speaking truth to power. So making sure that constituents um, in Connecticut that are concerned about this, not just domestically, but around the world, are really saying that to their members of Congress. Um, so we just actually had a meeting with uh, Senator Murphy's office last week by an advocate, and this was brought up. Um, And so I think as much as we can, getting in front of our our members of Congress and saying, you know, to support the International Violence Against Women Act, to support our foreign assistance budget, uh, which aims to secure the U.S. commitment to development and human rights, uh, those are the really important acts that we can take as regular citizens um, to ensure that domestic violence and women, violence against women uh, comes to an end. And Savannah, if people want to know more about CARE, again, you're an internationally develop, development organization uh, based in D.C., but you do work globally. I mean, where can they go? Um, I would say to our website, um, care.org is a great resource. Um, You can learn all about our programs. You can even do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the programs that focus on domestic violence. We have tons of reports that folks can read if they want to get into kind of the wonkiness of the reports. Um, But they can also use folks like me as a resource. Um, We also have advocate leaders on the ground in Connecticut that I can connect you to that are doing local organizing and and advocacy that is really, really important. I want to thank Savannah Fox, the Northeastern Regional Advocacy Coordinator for the Policy and Advocacy Department at CARE International USA. Uh, Thank you, Savannah. 
Thank you for having me on this morning. I appreciate it. I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Margaret Rosa, associate director of Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury. Uh, we got a call a little bit earlier um, that someone wanted to remind our listeners that if they're in a domestic violence situation, um, they're trying to leave, that police will come with the victim to get their things and move out of the home. How common is that, Margaret? Um, yeah, the the police will do that if that's what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, uh, remind our listeners of, of the number that they should call uh, if they're in Connecticut and they want more information on not jo- your not only your organization, the Safe Haven of Greater mm-hmm. Waterbury, but others uh, for more information. Oh, you can also, um, oh, the, the number, yeah, oh, sorry, <laughs> 888 um, 774 You can also go to the, um, the ctcadv.org website, um, and that will give you, um, for people who are more uh, internet savvy, that will give you the, um, the links to all the different programs as well. Uh, we also heard from a listener earlier who wanted to point out that um, you know there's domestic violence even among uh, the most wealthy in Greenwich. This is a problem that cuts across all socioeconomic backgrounds. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we we um, work with 13 different towns and communities um, for in in just our Waterbury area, and you know they affect uh, the Southbury, Woodbury, Bethlehem residents as well, Middlebury. Uh, those are some of the other towns that we cover, Cheshire. <laughs> so, yeah, they affect us all. And in terms of uh, Connecticut's uh, budget issues and, you know, how are these services, service agencies funded? Are there issues where it comes to keeping them open to help people um, at their hour of need? Um, it, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it depends on the organization. Um, each one's different. Um uh, we're every most of them are pretty diversified, so we just do our best, really. Like any other nonprofit organization, uh, we just do what we can to try to make sure that we're providing the services that the the residents of Connecticut need. And services include not just uh, getting out of of a bad situation, but in the long term, helping them with emotional support and getting them connected um, to services to help them with uh, finding housing, uh, finding a new new job. These are all things that encompass the work that you do. Oh, yeah, definitely. What we what we do is we basically, because um, everyone's different, their needs are different. So we just try to find out what those needs are and then just connect them. Well, I want to thank you again, Margaret Rosa, Associate Director of Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury. Um, We really appreciate you coming in to let us know about the resources here in the state of Connecticut. Thank you, Margaret. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff, our WMPR intern today. Sarah Bly, our technical producer, is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.